Hello everybody and welcome back to Something Dark. Thank you for joining me on our sixth episode. This is quite the case we're going to get into tonight, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at the case of a missing Boeing 777. In 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared. The aircraft departed from Kuala Lumpur Airport on March 8th, destined for Beijing, China, with 239 people on board. Under the control of Captain Zahari Shah, the Boeing 777 last communicated with air traffic control at 1.19am while travelling over the South China Sea before disappearing. Despite two full years of searching an area of ocean covering more than 120,000 square kilometres, it has never been found. MH370 is the only unexplained missing vessel in modern aviation history. To get into tonight's case, we're going to have a read through a brief description of what happened that night, written by aviation expert William Langwash for The Atlantic. At 12.42am on the quiet, moonlit night of March 8, 2014, a Boeing 777-200ER operated by Malaysia Airlines took off from Kuala Lumpur and turned towards Beijing. Climbing to its assigned cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, Farik Hamid, the first officer, was flying the plane. He was 27 years old. This was a training flight for him, the last one, and he would soon be fully certified. His trainer was the pilot in command, a man named Zahari Ahmed Shah, who at 53 was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines. In Malaysian style, he was known by his first name, Zahari. He was married and had three adult children. He lived in a gated development and owned two houses. In his first house, he had installed an elaborate Microsoft flight simulator. He flew it frequently and often posted to online forums about his hobby. In the cockpit. Freak would have been deferential to him, but Zahari was not known for being overbearing. In the cabin were ten flight attendants, all of them Malaysian. They had 227 passengers to care for, including five children. Most of the passengers were Chinese, of the rest, 38 were Malaysian, and in descending order, the others came from Indonesia, Australia, India, France, the United States, Iran, Ukraine, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Russia, and Taiwan. Up in the cockpit that night, while First Officer Freak flew the aeroplane, Captain Zahari handled the radios. The arrangement was standard. Zahari's transmissions were a bit unusual, though. At 1.01am, he radioed that they had levelled off at 35,000 feet, a superfluous report in radar-surveilled airspace where the norm is to report leaving an altitude, not arriving in one. At 1.08, the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Zahari again reported the plane's level at 35,000 feet. Eleven minutes later, as the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of the Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction, the controller at Kuala Lumpur Center radioed, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9, good night. Zahari answered, Good night, Malaysian 730. He did not bring back the frequency as he should have, but otherwise the transmission sounded normal. It was the last word heard from MH370. 
The pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh or answered any of the subsequent attempts to raise them. Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120, decimal 9. Good night. Good night, Malaysian 370. Five seconds after MH370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol representing its transponder dropped from the screens of Malaysian air traffic control, and 37 seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. Although it wasn't widely known at the time, when the transporter stopped functioning, Malaysian military radar could still track the flight. It showed the plane turning right, but then beginning a left turn to a southwesterly direction. The last known radar detection picked up by the Malaysian military was from a point near the limits of the Malaysian military radar, 439 kilometers from Penyang at 2.22 a.m. This information was kept secret by the military until days later. 39 minutes after takeoff at 1.21 a.m., the controller in Kuala Lumpur was dealing with other traffic elsewhere on his screen and simply didn't notice Flight 370 drop from the radar. When he finally did, he assumed that the airplane was in the hands of Ho Chi Minh, somewhere out beyond his range. The Vietnamese controllers, meanwhile, saw MH370 cross into their airspace and then disappear from radar. They apparently misunderstood a formal agreement by which Ho Chi Minh was supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane that had been handed off was more than five minutes late checking in. They tried repeatedly to contact the aircraft, but to no avail. By the time they picked up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur, 18 minutes had passed since MH370's disappearance from their radar screens. What ensued was an exercise in confusion and incompetence. Kuala Lumpur's Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Centre should have been notified within an hour of the disappearance. By 2.30am, it had still not been found. Four more hours elapsed before an emergency response had finally begun. At 6.32am, when the plane should have been landing in Beijing. Countries were reluctant to release information collected from their military radar because of sensitivity about revealing their capabilities. Indonesia had an early warning radar system, but its air traffic control radar did not register any aircraft with the transponder code used by Flight 370, despite the aircraft possibly having flown near, or over, the northern tip of Sumatra. Indonesian military radar tracked Flight 370 earlier before the transponder is thought to have been turned off but it did not provide any information on whether it was detected afterwards. Thailand and Vietnam also detected Flight 370 on radar before the transponder stopped working. The radar position symbols for the transponder code used by Flight 370 vanished after the transponder is thought to have been turned off. Thai military radar detected an aircraft that might have been Flight 370, but it is not known at what time the last radar contact was made, and the signal did not include any identifying data. Also, the flight was not detected by Australia's conventional system or its long-range, JORN, over-the-horizon radar system, which has an official range of 3,000 kilometers. The latter was not in operation the night of the disappearance. For six hours after the airplane disappeared from secondary radar, MH370 continued to link up intermittently with a geostationary Indian Ocean satellite operated by Immersat. Immersat is a commercial vendor in London that owns and operates the world's most reliable global satellite networks. 
It's responsible for features on the plane like in-flight Wi-Fi, passenger entertainment, and automated maintenance reports. As the plane had continued to link up to Immersat for six hours, it meant that the plane had not suddenly suffered a catastrophic event. During those six hours, it is presumed to have remained at a high speed, high altitude, at a cruising flight. The Emersat link-ups, some of them known as handshakes, were electronic blips. These blips amounted to a small exchange of information because of the attended contents of the system, like passenger entertainment, in-flight Wi-Fi, and automated maintenance supports, had been isolated or switched off. Altogether, there were seven link-ups. Two initiated automatically by the airplane, and five others initiated automatically by the Emersat ground station. There were also two satellite phone calls. They went unanswered, but provided additional data. Associated with most of these connections were just two values that Immersat had only recently began to log. The first and more accurate of the values is known to be the burst timing offset. It's a measure of the transmission time to and from an airplane, and therefore the plane's distance from the satellite. It does not pinpoint a single location, but rather all equidistant locations, a roughly circular set of possibilities. Given the range limits of MH370, the near circles can be reduced to arcs. The most important arc is the seventh and last one. Defined by a final handshake tied in complex ways to fuel exhaustion and the failure of the main engines. The seventh arc stretches from Central Asia in the north to the vicinity of the Antarctic in the south. It was crossed by MH370 at 8.19am Kuala Lumpur time. Calculations of likely flight paths place the airplane's intersection with the seventh arc, and therefore its endpoint, in Kazakhstan if the plane turned north, or in the southern Indian Ocean if it turned south. Judging from the electronic evidence, this was not a controlled attempt at a water landing. The airplane must have fractured instantly into a million pieces. Technical analysis indicates with near certainty that the airplane turned south. We know this from Imrasat's second log value the burst frequency offset. Immersat technicians in London were able to discern a significant distortion suggesting a turn to the south at 2.40am. The turn point was a bit north and west of Sumatra, the northernmost island of Indonesia. It has been assumed that the airplane then flew straight and level for a very long time while in the general direction of Antarctica, which lay beyond its range. After six hours, a steep descent was indicated as much as five times greater than a normal descent rate. Within a minute or two of crossing the seventh arc, the plane dived into the ocean, possibly shedding components before impact. But no one knew exactly where the impact had occurred, and much less why, and no one had the slightest bit of physical evidence to confirm that the satellite interpretations were actually correct. Malaysia Airlines issued a media statement at 7.24am, one hour after the scheduled arrival time of the flight at Beijing, stating that communication with the flight had been lost at 2.40am and that the government had initiated search and rescue operations. The time when contact was lost was later corrected to 1.21am. Neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication systems related to stress signal, indications of bad weather, or technical problems before the aircraft vanished from radar screens. 
On March 24th, Malaysian Prime Minister appeared before the media at 10pm local time to give a statement regarding Flight 370, during which he announced that he had been briefed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch and that it and Immersat had concluded that the airliner's last position before it disappeared was in the southern Indian Ocean. As there were no places where it could have landed, aircraft must therefore have crashed into the sea. Just before the Prime Minister spoke, an emergency meeting was called in Beijing for relatives of Flight 370 passengers. Malaysia Airlines announced that Flight 370 was assumed lost with no survivors. It notified most of the families in person or via telephone, and some received an SMS in English or Chinese, informing them that it was likely that the aircraft had crashed with no survivors. A search and rescue effort was launched in Southeast Asia soon after the disappearance of Flight 370. From the 18th to the 27th of March 2014, the search effort focused on a 305,000 square kilometre area, about 2,600 kilometres southwest of Perth. The search area, which Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott called as close to nowhere as it's possible to be, is renowned for its strong winds, inhospitable climate, hostile seas, and deep ocean floors. Satellite imagery of the region was analysed, and several objects of interest and two possible debris fields were identified on images made between the 16th to the 26th of March. None of these possible objects were found by aircraft or by ships. Revised estimates of the radar track and the aircraft's remaining fuel led to a move of the search 1,100 kilometres northeast of the previous area on the 28th of March which was followed by another shift on the 4th of April. Between the 2nd and the 17th of April, an effort was made to detect the underwater locator beacons attached to the aircraft's flight recorders because the beacon's batteries were expected to expire around the 7th of April. Between the 4th to the 8th of April, several acoustic detections were made that were close to the frequency and rhythm of the sound emitted by the flight recorders underwater locator beacons. Analysis of the acoustic detections determined that, although unlikely, the detections could have come from a damaged underwater locator beacon. A sonar search at the seafloor near the detections was carried out between the 14th of April and the 28th of May, but yielded no sign of Flight 370. In a March 2015 report, it was revealed that the battery of the underwater locator beacon attached to Flight 370's flight data recorder may have expired in December 2012 and thus may not have been capable of sending signals, as it would be an expired battery. In late June 2014, details of the next phase of the search were announced. The governments of Malaysia, China and Australia agreed to thoroughly search 125,000 kilometres of seafloor. This phase of the search, which began on the 6th of October 2014, equipped with towed deep water vehicles that use SICAN sonar, multi-beam echo sounders, and video cameras to locate and identify aircraft debris. Following the discovery of the flapperon, a piece of the plane's wing, on reunion, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau reviewed its drift calculations for debris and were satisfied that the search area was still the most likely crash site. Reverse drift modelling of the debris to determine its origin after 16 months also supported the underwater search area, although this method is very imprecise over long periods. On the 17th of January 2017, the three countries jointly announced the suspension of the search for Flight 370. Later that year, on the 17th of October, Malaysia received proposals from three companies, including Dutch-based Fugro 
at an American company called Ocean Infinity, offering to continue the search for the aircraft. In January 2018, Ocean Infinity announced it was planning to resume the search in the narrow 25,000 square kilometer area. The search attempt was approved by the Malaysian government, provided that payment would only be made if the wreckage was found. By the end of May 2018, Ocean Infinity had searched a total area of over 112,000 square kilometers. They confirmed on May 31st that its contract with the Malaysian government had ended, and it was reported on the 9th of June 2018 that the Ocean Infinity search had come to an end. In March 2019, in the wake of the 5th anniversary of the disappearance, the Malaysian government stated that it was willing to look at any credible leads or specific proposals regarding a new search. Ocean Infinity stated it was ready to resume the search on the same no-fee, no-find basis. Ocean Infinity believed the most probable location was still somewhere along the 7th arc, the same area they had searched in 2018. Moving on to look at the reported sightings. The news media reported several sightings of an aircraft fitting the description of the missing Boeing 777. For example, on the 19th of March 2014, CNN reported that witnesses including fishermen, an oil rig worker, and people on the Kudahavadu Atoll in the Maldives saw the missing airliner. But of course, nothing has seemed to come from any of these sightings. After MH370 went missing, Malaysia quickly assembled a joint investigations team, consisting of specialists from Malaysia, China, the United Kingdom, the United States, and France. The team consisted of an airworthiness group, an operations group, and a medical and human factors group. The airworthiness group were tasked with examining issues related to maintenance records, structures, and systems of the aircraft. The operations group were to review the flight recorders, operations, and meteorology, and the medical and human factors group would investigate psychological, pathological, and survival factors. Malaysia also announced on the 6th of April 2014 that it had set up three ministerial committees, a next-of-kin committee, a committee to organise the formation of the JIT, and a committee responsible for the Malaysian assets deployed in the search effort. The criminal investigation was led by the Royal Malaysia Police, assisted by Interpol and other relevant international law enforcement authorities. During the investigation, both power interruption and an incident with the crew were considered as possible causes. Looking at the possible power interruption, investigators analysed the SAPCON communications from MH370, and their analysis of the characteristics and timing of these communications suggest a power interruption in flight is the most likely culprit. As the power interruption was not due to engine flameout, they think it may have been a result of manually switching off the aircraft's electrical system. When considering an incident happening with the crew, an analysis comparing the evidence available for Flight 370 with three categories of accidents. An in-flight upset, a glide event, like an engine failure or fuel exhaustion, and an unresponsive crew or hypoxia event, concluded that an unresponsive crew or hypoxia event best fit the available evidence 
for the five-hour period of the flight as it traveled south over the Indian Ocean without communication or significant deviations in its tracks, likely on autopilot. If no control inputs were made following a flame out and the disengagement of autopilot, the aircraft would have likely entered a spiral dive and entered the ocean within 37 kilometers of the flame out and disengagement of autopilot. As well as searching for the aircraft, they were hopeful to find debris, and a lot of debris washed up that had nothing to do with the plane. But some debris was found, including a flaperon, which is part of the wing. The analysis of the flaperon showed that the landing flaps were not extended, supporting the spiral dive at a high speed theory. In May 2018, the investigation again asserted that the flight was not in control when it crashed. Its spokesperson added, We have quite a bit of data to tell us that the aircraft, if it was being controlled at the end, wasn't being successfully controlled. The fact remains that after all of these years, no one has yet been able to work backwards from where the debris washed ashore and trace it to some point of origin in the southern Indian Ocean. The airplane flew for six hours until the flight suddenly came to an end. There was no effort by someone at the controls to bring the airplane down gently. It shattered. There is still a chance of finding the equivalent of a message in a bottle, a note of desperation scribbled by someone in his or her last moments on the doomed aeroplane. As with most unexplained disappearances, there are many theories and conspiracies to try and explain what really happened. U.S. officials believe the most likely explanation to be that someone in the cockpit of Flight 370 reprogrammed the aircraft's autopilot to travel south across the Indian Ocean. Police searched the homes of the pilots and seized financial records for all 12 crew members, including bank statements, credit card bills, and mortgage documents. On April 2, 2014, Malaysia's police inspector general said that more than 170 interviews had been conducted as part of Malaysia's criminal investigation including interviews with family members of the crew and pilots. In a report issued by Malaysia in March 2015, it was stated that there was no evidence of recent or imminent significant financial transactions carried out by any of the pilots or crew, and that an analysis of the behaviour of the pilots on CCTV showed no significant behavioural changes. The report read, The pilot in control's ability to handle stress at work was reported to be good. There was no known history of apathy, anxiety, or irritability. There were no significant changes in his lifestyle, interpersonal conflict, or family stresses. There were no behavioral signs of social isolation, changes of habit, or interest. On studying the pilot in control's behavioral pattern on the CCTV at the airport on the day of the flight and prior three flights, there were no significant behavioral changes observed. On all the CCTV recordings, the appearance was similar, well-groomed and attired. The gait, posture, and facial expressions and mannerisms were his normal characteristics. In 2016, a leaked American document stated that a route on the pilot's home flight simulator, which closely matched the protected flight over the Indian Ocean, was found in the FBI analysis of the flight simulator's computer hard drive. Forensic examinations of Zahari's simulator by the FBI revealed that he had experimented with a flight profile roughly matching that of MH370, a flight north around Indonesia followed by a long run to the south, ending in fuel exhaustion over the Indian Ocean. 
Malaysian investigators dismissed this flight profile as merely one of several hundred that the simulator had recorded. That is true as far as it goes, which is not far enough. Victor Anello, an engineer and entrepreneur in Roanoke, Virginia, who had done extensive analysis of the simulated flight, underscores what the Malaysian investigators ignored. Of all the profiles extracted from the simulator, the one that matched MH370's path was the only one that Sahari did not run as a continuous flight. In other words, taking off in the simulator and letting the flight play out, hour after hour until it reached its destination airport. Instead, he advanced the flight manually in multiple stages, repeatedly jumping the flight forward and subtracting the fuel as necessary until it was all gone. Anello believes that Sahari was responsible for the diversion. Given that there was nothing technical that Sahari could have learned by rehearsing the act on a game like Microsoft Consumer Product, Anello suspects the purpose of the flight simulator may have been to leave behind a breadcrumb trail to say goodbye. Referring to the flight profile that MH370 would follow, Anello said of Zahari, It's as if he was simulating a simulation. Without a note of explanation, Zahari's reasoning is impossible to know, but the simulator flight cannot easily be dismissed as a random coincidence. Reading through William Langwash's article in The Atlantic, there is a section I want to share with you. In Kuala Lumpur, William actually met with one of Zahari's lifelong friends, a fellow 777 captain. He too believed Zahari was guilty, a conclusion he had come to reluctantly. He described the mystery as a pyramid that is broad at the base and one man wide at the top, meaning that the inquiry may have begun with many possible explanations, but ended up with a single one. He said it doesn't make sense. It's hard to reconcile that with the man I knew, but it's the necessary conclusion. William asked about how Zahari would deal with his cockpit companion, First Officer Farid Kamit. He replied, that's easy. Zahari was an examiner. All he had to say was go check on something in the cabin, and that guy would have been gone. William asked about a motive, and he said Zahari's marriage was bad and in the past he slept with some flight attendants. And so what? They all do. You're flying all over the world with these beautiful girls in the back. But his wife knew. He agreed that this was hardly a reason to go berserk, but thought Zahari's emotional state might have been a factor. I think the absence of all of this from the official report says a lot, and I would bet there is likely more to be discovered that we don't know about yet. At various stages of the investigation, Possible hijacking scenarios were considered, including crew involvement and a suspicion of the airplane's cargo manifest. Many theories have also been proposed by the media. The Malaysian Ministry of Transport's final report from July 2018 was inconclusive, but highlighted Malaysian air traffic controllers' failure to attempt to communicate with the aircraft shortly after its disappearance. So, what can we learn from this disaster? In the absence of a definitive cause of disappearance, air transport industry safety recommendations and regulations have been introduced to prevent a similar event. These include increased battery life on the underwater locator beacons, lengthening recording times on flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders, and new standards for aircraft position reporting over the open ocean. 
lack of physical evidence in determining the cause of MH370's disappearance, as well as the absence of any physical confirmation that the airplane crashed, raises many issues regarding responsibility for the accident and the payments made by insurance agencies. Under the Montreal Convention, it is the carrier's responsibility to prove lack of fault in an accident and each passenger's next of kin are automatically entitled to, regardless of fault, a payment of approximately $175,000 from the airline's insurance company, amounting to a total of almost $40 million for the 227 passengers lost on board. I am hopeful one day that we can get an answer about what happened, and I believe that a private company like Ocean Infinity will be able to uncover more answers. I think the theory about the pilot is the most probable, or at least the most explainable. But until we're able to recover the wreckage, or at least one of the two black boxes, we will be left in the dark. I can't imagine the pain and sadness of all the families who lost their loved ones, so for their sake and closure, I hope more answers are revealed soon. And that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. So I know with the unsolved mysteries and disappearances, it's a little bit frustrating and upsetting to not have an answer, but I really believe in the future, especially with the private companies, that they're going to be able to uncover, hopefully, the wreckage. Let me know if you have any theories. There are a couple I didn't touch on. But if there's one that you're gung-ho for, let me know and I'd be very interested to have a look into it. For me, I just feel like the pilots, a flight simulator and all of that is kind of the smoking gun. Um, As someone who is scared of flying, reading the kind of technical things about the, the plane crash and all that kind of stuff was kind of scary. Um... So I think whenever I go on my next flight, well, with COVID, who knows when that's going to be, but <laughs> I'm definitely going to be scared. I would really recommend looking into William Langwash's article on the Atlantic, in the Atlantic. It's really interesting, um, very, very well written. And I don't suggest reading any of, any of his articles before you have to go on a plane. <laughs> They're very, especially the ones about plane crashes and stuff. He really uh, is able to put you in your seat in the airplane um explaining everything that's going on so it's kind of horrifying especially if you're scared of flying so for my next case for next week it's going to be a true crime um that's solved because i know this one and the one before they're both unsolved Anyways, I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. There was a lot to go through. Um, there's a lot of information about the searches of for the wreckage and everything. And I didn't want to bore, bore you guys with like all of the technical, talking about the different kind of boats and stuff they used. But if you're interested at all in this case, there is so much online about it. And even more things coming out. Um, it seems like every year there's more things coming out. Um, I believe they are quite quite sure that they will find the wreckage on that along that seventh arc so hopefully something comes out about that but if you're interested just google flight mh370 and you're going to be 
inundated with articles. Anyways, um, if you have a case that you'd like me to cover, please send me a DM is probably the best way to get in touch. The Instagram is in the show notes, but it's just something.dark.podcast. So I want to say thank you for watching and I will talk to you in my next episode.